I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Welcome to my vagina. This is Jesse Karen. And this is Rebecca Frank. And here we are again having our current historical, hysterical, and infuriating conversation about our lives as vagina-having organisms. All content made up on the spot, but probably researched. Just kidding, fools. It's definitely researched. Before we get started, we just want to ask if you would maybe consider giving us some donations on Glow.fm or go check it out. We're offering t-shirts and totes and everything for monthly subscribers or even one-time donors. We do a lot of work for free and obviously with everything that's going on, we could uh, use a little help getting you some more content. And don't forget about the underwear. We also have underwear. Oh my God, we do have never forget about the underwear. So before the U.S. Post Office stops being uh, in existence, order some merch and we'll send it to you. Support the Postal Service. Support it. And us. Please, yes. Support the Postal Service. Okay. And before that, we are going to talk about what, Rebecca? Um, Today, we have an interview with Lindsey Boylan, who's running against Jerry Nadler for Congress in New York State's 10th District, which is really, really exciting. We got to chat with her... Uh, remotely since we're all working from home. So please forgive any weird sound issues or whatever. But we had a really great conversation. She's awesome. Keep your eye on her over the coming months. Yeah, she's amazing. But before that, because we do, I I think we're we're trying to not bring you too much content that's Corona related, but it's also hard and it's also important. So we did that. But before that, to give you a little bookcasing of the funsies, I'm going to give you my presentation on why a hard boiled egg is the best fucking snack by Jesse the Perfectly Poached Karen. <laughs> Let me count the ways. They're cheap. They're ridiculously versatile. They have a great shelf life. They're healthy. They give you energy. They're perfect for traveling excursions. They make a great canvas. Hello, Easter. You can hide them and you can find them. They can fit in all kinds of things. They're great weapons. And they're ridiculously good looking. <laughs> It's so true. And you know how everyone always gets so excited about dresses with pockets? Do you know what you could keep in the pocket of your dress? A hard-boiled egg. I've That's done right. it. I've been there. Who hasn't? Who hasn't? That's the question. <laughs> Night out on the town, you got your little like clutch that matches your dress. What do you do? You put an egg in there for a snack later. 
And better yet, you get the energy from the snack from the hard-boiled egg from your clutch for that one-night stand that you might have. That's right. And it, I feel like we could have our own show instead of Portlandia where it's put a bird on it. You could just have one that's just put an egg in it. Put a hard-boiled egg in it. Put, put a, a hard-boiled egg, egg in it. Yeah, they make great weapons. As Rebecca had mentioned to me previously, they're great mental warfare. So when you unpeel them around a rude person, you can blame your fart on them. Yeah, I've done it before. Yeah. Or if your roommate's getting like sassy and like mouthy with you, you can soft boil an egg and then smash it over their head. So true. Oh, my God. You know, it would be really funny if you had a jerk and they were like, oh, what's that smell? And then you could be you could be eating your egg and be like, whoever smelt it, dealt it. (laughs) (laughs) I love pulling that line. Yeah, I haven't used that in a really long time, but I feel like this presentation about hard-boiled egg has brought me back to like being on the middle school playground and the like the first way that I ever learned how to shut down a conversation. Absolutely. Whoever smelt it, dealt it, it works every time. <laughs> Women candidates have outperformed men candidates in competitive races. And look at 2018. We took back the house. We took back state houses around the country, state legislatures. How? Women candidates and women who said, I am in this fight all the way. Hi. Thank you so much for coming on. We're very excited. I'm excited to be here. I guess to get started, would you mind telling us and your listeners who you are and what you're running for? I'm Lindsay Boylan, and I'm running uh, in the 10th Congressional District of New York for Congress. Uh, when I get elected, I'll be the first woman in almost 50 years since Bella Abzug to lead the community. And the district uh, goes all the way from basically Columbia University on the Upper West Side, uh, all of the west side of Manhattan, lower Manhattan, including Wall Street. And it jumps over into Brooklyn and has the coastline of Red Hook and Sunset Park, Borough Park, and a few other areas on the edges of different parts of the, of the community. So it's a really, it's the third smallest district, but it's a very rarefied district. I have a couple of questions that are sort of specific to the way that that our current situation might be impacting your campaigning and your messaging? Sure, sure. So like looking at the pandemic and and uh, thinking about how, at least at the presidential level, what the Democratic primary has been looking like for the past, you know, 15 years, it feels like, even though it's probably only a year and a half. And like, I've seen a lot of the coverage of that on the news kind of uh, disappear a little bit with the pandemic. And that's mm-hmm. what everyone's talking about. And I'm wondering if you've noticed a real change in engagement or challenges in trying to campaign currently. Yeah, I think, you know, it, the for much of the campaign, um, the the presidential campaign kind of um, influenced the things we would be talking about. So I'm I'm a progressive. I think we should push for med- we should have Medicare for all. We should be pushing for really aggressive response to climate change, and things that people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Julian Castro. The things they were saying, you know, really had a lot to do with pushing uh, and informing some of the things that I've been working on. Um, but I would say more recently, I mean, our, our, our country, because of this public health crisis is at a standstill and we obviously have no leadership at the federal level from the president. I think Congress is really struggling to take the necessary steps to help people. And I think that there's been largely an absence of the leading candidate, Joe Biden, um, in really, you know, being present and and giving people the sense of certainty that we're seeing a lot more leadership from our governor, um, who coincidentally I worked for for a number of years in New York, we can talk about too. And I think for me, 
it, it really just drives home all of the points that are behind uh, my candidacy and in our race. Uh, so, so this district happens to be the most unequal district in the country, uh, meaning we have some of the wealthiest people, we have a fair number of billionaires um, who live in the district, and we have people living in public housing in really substandard conditions that have been living in substandard conditions for a long time. We have in the city of New York, uh, you know, about 100,000 kids who are in some form of homelessness or in shelter system throughout the year. And obviously this moment in time has only exacerbated all these problems. You know, we have a record number of unemployment numbers. Um, you know, 10 million people have filed for unemployment um, through, through this pandemic. And it only exacerbates all of the extreme inequalities, the different life outcomes that people have based on your background, based on your race, based on your gender. And it's just not acceptable. And we can't live in a country where that's possible. And we're seeing, you know, life or death situations manifesting themselves because of, in many cases, the inequalities we have. And and even our fixes of home and uh, shelter in place, you know, it, it, they that's not possible for everyone. If you um, don't have paid sick leave and you work in a, in a grocery store, you're going to work every day and you aren't making any more money and you're... You know, you're, you're facing a lot of challenges if you even do have a job. So for me, it drives home the importance of changing leadership because, you know, the problems of our country didn't become problems over, overnight, even if this public health crisis has manifested and sort of exacerbated all of those problems. What has it been like actually going up against a powerful man and a longtime incumbent, Jerry Nadler? And like, what have the responses been? Have you had a lot of have you had a certain amount of intimidation? Has there been a level of support? Sure. You know, it's so funny because I've been doing this now for basically a year. I've been in this race. Uh, people, the, the elections, particularly at the congressional level, really only, you know, start to to gain broader attention or, you know, people start to notice it because, you know, people shouldn't have to live their lives in politics and campaigns. People should be able to live their lives knowing that government works, which it doesn't. But, um, but typically, even though what we see and hear about a campaign is ends up being in the last few months of aside from this presidential um, primary, which seems to your point, like it's been forever, um, is it's all at the end. But I've been in this for a year. And when I got in the race, I faced tremendous intimidation. I had a very high profile Democratic Party fundraiser surrogate for my opponent, tell me that my career was over and really threaten me and sort of belittle me for even attempting to launch a, a race to make change. And I had a lot of that in the beginning. People said things like, you know, Congressman Nadler is going to save us. And at that time, saving us meant stopping Donald Trump. Now, you know, unfortunately, Donald Trump hasn't been stopped. Uh, and in fact, his his poor decision making has been responsible for probably the loss of thousands more lives than, than needed to be the case um, in this public health crisis. And and so people had said to me from the beginning, you know, this guy's going to save us all. And, you know, I'm the daughter of a, a mom who who first became a mother at 16 as a single single woman. And, um, you know, she taught me from a very early age never to think any guy was coming to save me. And so I just I just said, well, let me let me let me focus on what I think needs to change and we'll see where the chips fall. And a year later, you know, we haven't been saved by Congressman Nadler not one person can save any of us, but we need a whole new um, crop of leaders, um, a whole new generation of leaders that are going to stand up and say enough is enough. Too many people are dying because they don't have health care. Too many people are not able to make it 
possible to have the American dream, all of the things that have really been ignored largely or paid lip service to for too long. The other thing I got was, you know, you seem like a nice girl and literally people would use girl, but you know, you worked for Cuomo, you know, or you, your husband's an investment banker or all of these things. And I just find it was very interesting that focused a lot on, you know, how, who I was in relationship to particularly a dude. Um, someone mm-hmm. I work for, um, what my husband does for a living and all that kind of stuff. And I think one of the benefits of having been in this race for a year is that people ha- can start to see what I'm about. I'm not, I'm not repping anyone else. I'm not using a mouthpiece from someone else. I'm not stumping for what someone else believes. I'm doing what I believe. And, you know, you got to believe in what you're doing in, in, in an experience like this, cause it's not always fun. You know, it's, it's a challenge and you have to have a passion for, um, what you're trying to do. And it, we need to see change. And, you know, it's interesting because a year ago, if you had told me that uh, the governor I worked for would be the most pop, maybe one of the more popular leaders in, in America, and that we would have this public health crisis that um, would bring parts of New York together in some sense, um, you know, and the importance of economic development, where I spent my a lot of my career and job creation would be on the forefront. We couldn't have predicted any of that. But I think the point is, People are going to tell, particularly women, that it's not their time. And the reality Mm -hmm. is it's never going to be our time. And so whenever someone hears that in any field, I think that should just inspire them to go for it more. Because if I had listened, I wouldn't be running. I would probably be hosting a, you know, I would be asked to host something for um, any number of the male the male leaders that represent me at every level from city council to, to, to governor, to president, to congressman, to state senator, to you know, all, all of the gentlemen who represent me and they represent my daughter and they represent what I think needs to change in, uh, about paid leave in this country, what I think needs to change about whose voices are at the table. And it's just not good enough. And so um, whenever I get angry, which has been a fair number of times because the system is messed up, I just think about how lucky I am to have the voice and the privilege to say no. That's BS. Um because people like my mom and my grandmother and probably a lot of people's moms and grandmothers didn't have that opportunity. And if someone can try and silence me from a position that I'm in now, I've come so far in my own life. I didn't start here. Um, Think what they do to people who don't have those opportunities. It just pisses me off and it pissed me off and it, it frankly propels me to do it more. We're just gonna take a brief break for our sponsor today. This episode of Welcome to My Vagina is brought to you by Best Fiends. Yay! The mobile puzzle game that we both love because we love bugs. And not slugs. Yeah, we really don't like slugs at all. And Mm -mm. so in this game, we get the opportunity to use our awesome characters to kill the slugs. Have you been playing a lot recently? I have. I just made it to level 100. How about you? Me too. Oh my god. How's it going? It's going really well. I've been texting back and forth with my sister. She plays also, and we've been just uh comparing our progress i'm crushing her amazing this is yeah this is just like another way for our sibling rivalry to really just like play itself out (laughs) (laughs) it's awesome because the other day it was really beautiful out and i sat outside in front of the house where we don't have internet access very well and i was able to play anyways because you don't need to access the internet to play. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. And we're back. Um, 
since you brought up your mom and grandma, actually, one of the things that I found really interesting looking through your policy proposals and the areas that you're really focused on is looking at older folks here in the United States. And I think it's really hit home to me through this pandemic how um, uh, disposable a lot of people think that older people are. This conversation yeah. that was coming from I think it was, was it DeSantis in Texas and people saying oh, that terrible. Oh yeah. We can, we can get rid of a couple of old people to save the economy because whatever, or I don't have to stay home because it's just old people. And they just, it's, it's like, they just get left out. It's just, and terrible. so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about yes. your focus on that and how you came to that as an important part of your uh, platform. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I'll take a step back even because um, there's this sense um, between the pandemic and um, a lot of the even the presidential campaign, because we have several, I think, septuagenarians and octogenarians running. And then we had on the other side, Pete Buttigieg running, that it's like a one generation versus the other. And I try very carefully not even to say, like, I need to be the next generation in age uh, in terms of my own moment in time in my own leadership, because we're really all in this together. And obviously, the the public health crisis proves that. But I just want to highlight uh, one of the very early, really important conversations I had that really shaped a lot of how, how about, you know, the community that we need to be. Um, I went to a breakfast, uh, one of my friends who's a mom hosted me and a bunch of other moms on the Upper West Side uh, just to talk about the issues. So we went around the table. There was about 12, there were about 12 women there. I introduced myself and then I asked each woman to introduce themselves and talk about one issue that's really, you know, either keeping them up at night or they're, th they're struggling with it a lot. This was, of course, you know, before this whole public health crisis. Um, and the first woman said something about um, housing issues, which is no surprise because that's a big issue in our community. Um, affordability, all sorts of issues with housing. Um, and then the next woman said, you know, I'm, I got two kids, uh, but I'm also taking care of my mom. And that's a real struggle for me because it's really emotionally draining. And then she, you know, talked a little bit more about the experience. Her mom has early Alzheimer's. And then every single woman around the table had some version of being in a caregiving role for a family member uh, predominantly seniors. And most of the people at the table, or if not all of them had kids, but the thing that was keeping them up and the thing that they were struggling with was the emotional and financial burden of being in a caregiving role when all of this really goes unacknowledged by our government, goes unsupported by our government, right? And people are living longer in this country. In New York City, um, by 2030, one in five people is going to be a senior. This is a growing population that we have. And, and we've created a system where people may be living longer, but it makes more sense for them to bankrupt themselves rather than try and plan financially for retirement. We've created an entire system that um, makes it really impossible to live the quote unquote golden years of your life and, and not become a huge you know, problem for everyone in the family. And our, our seniors shouldn't have that fear. No families should be put in that position. And our government should be providing um, a, a system that enables people to age gracefully and enjoy their lives. And obviously everything that's happening now 
exacerbates how unfairly and how dismissively seniors get treated. That happens in public funding allocation constantly. I mean, even in issues of housing, which is a huge uh, aspect to, to, to my policy stance, we need to spend a lot more money on senior housing right now. If people want to age in their in, in in their communities in New York, which is probably the best way for them to stay alive, to be able to go to the regular grocery store, the regular shops, walk down the block, that's really hard because the fixed income doesn't allow them to do that, and there aren't enough senior houses to 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 respond to that. And we're not making it possible. And then we're just perpetuating this problem for extended families that can't afford to do it and have the emotional burden of it. The, the, the biggest growing job in the next 10 years, aside from solar panel in, installation person, is a home nurse, home nurse for people and a caregiver role. And unfortunately, of course, because women are predominantly the ones who are in caregiving roles, um, it's not a well-paid job. And I just think we're all interconnected in this system. And I don't want, I refuse to let my mom be treated poorly or anyone's mom or anyone's father or anyone's family member. I mean, that's the whole point of a society. And we need to have a culture that is caring for our seniors. And, um, you know, I think we're seeing that right now. Our healthcare system doesn't do it. We don't have, you know, the Affordable Care Act didn't ultimately include long-term care insurance, which is how we care for people in their golden years, particularly if they have um, significant health care needs. Um, we don't have a housing system that accommodates it. Um, and we don't have a paid sick leave policy that enables family members to keep their jobs when they have to go and, and, and help. And all of it doesn't work. And all of it um, prevents us from functioning as a society. And we're seeing that now. And um, you know, there is, it is strange to me how, um, acceptable in, to some people it still is to discriminate by, you know, age and, um, you know, that in of itself is really wrong, but beyond that, um, think about how interconnected we are all. Um, I'm a millennial. I think maybe you laser around the same age. I'm not sure. Um, I now feel like I'm the same age as everyone, but I'm usually a few years older than them. Um, <laughs> but this is because I feel like I'm still younger than I am. Um, and 25% of millennials are in a caregiving role already. So this is a problem that's coming. So we can talk about it in terms of doing the right thing and caring for people who could be a family member, could be us. Um, or we can talk about it in terms of a, of a challenge that we're all going to face, whether or not we want to. And it's just the right thing to do. Um, you know, unfortunately, I, I about two weeks ago experienced my first friend who passed away from the coronavirus. And she was such a great light in the community. She lived down the block from us. She knew my daughter. She knew the history of New York City politics. Um, and she was tough. And Boy, did I learn more from her um, than than most you know books I've read on New York City politics. And you know, we're just in every way we're we're really missing the boat here. And this this public health crisis just shows us that. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the fissures in society that have always kind of existed there are really being highlighted now through this because. I keep yes. seeing people saying stuff like, "Oh, this is the great equalizer," but the reality is that when we look at the statistics of who's being affected by this, it's the same communities that are always affected by the shortcomings in our policies. They're the same people that are having the worst health outcome health outcomes during this. Yes. 
Yes, um, it's exactly. also the, the things that you were saying. It's also like <sighs> people forget that we are all most likely going to get old or know somebody who is. And it's always really surprising to me that people don't yeah. want to take care of yeah. the elderly. Even, you know, like we should do it because they deserve it. But also just even if you're going to be a selfish person, like you're going to be there one day. <laughs> so like, don't you want to be taken care of as well? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And uh, yes. And we've, I think, you know, since the financial crisis, um, a lot of our parents lost, um, you know, their ones, much of their one source of, of wealth um, through their homes, you know, or lost great value on them. And uh, younger generations have never had as much money because they haven't made as much money in the workforce. Um, and, you know, the middle class and lower middle classes are being squeezed uh, a, a tremendous amount. And it just means extreme inequality just means we're 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 going to have a harder time um until we do more redistribution and have more programs to help people of doing the basic jobs of making sure everyone can live the basic quality life that we would expect in a wealthy country like America in what we would expect for the American dream and it's just it's not happening and it's actually yeah. going the other direction i mean if we there's some statistics, the bottom 20% purely from an economic, socioeconomic standpoint of, of kids have a less than 10% chance of doing better than their own parents in life. And that's just like, like, what is that? That's, that's the opposite of the American dream, but that's what we're, that's what we're um, passing along currently to the next generation. And it's all connected to your point. You know, we're all connected in this, whether or not we want to be. Yeah. Our, produ- yeah. our producer just made a good point that it's bizarre because all the all the politicians are like old white men. <laughs> you think yes, that they'd want yes, to help. I mean, yeah, no. And it's um, well, you know, at the same time, like if you work in if you're in Congress, I think they get paid one hundred seventy five thousand dollars a year. You have a much more generous retirement and sick leave package than Americans do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let's start with what Congress gets and then apply that to America. I mean, yeah. That'd of be course, <laughs> they're not. I think that's, you know, just as an aside, I don't think it's the broader point. But even when we talk about the failures, I think there are some real challenges with the first stimulus bill, which we've 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 all been able to see probably. Um, it, a lot of that has to do, I think, with distance that our members in Congress feel from the real pains of most Americans. You know, I had put together a stimulus plan or crisis plan really just focused on direct cash payments to all Americans, no means testing, which of course they didn't do. Um, uh, More generous unemployment insurance benefits, which they did do, um, although there are a lot of implementation problems with that when you have 10 million people applying. Um, And then small business grants. Um, And I think the the biggest glaring, glaringly obvious piece is a lot of people just aren't getting the money in real time that they need, even if it's whether it's too, too little, or if it's enough to tide them over in terms of their rent or their, you know, basic necessities. People don't have the luxury of waiting four to five weeks to get a check um, to tide them over. And I think that that's, you know, that's a failure of implementation. You can have failures of policy, or you can have failures of implementation. And I think that this converges on both because people aren't getting enough money and they're not getting it quickly enough. And there's real pain right now. Um, And I think we're seeing that. And I think that comes from distance of experience and removed people who've been removed for a long time from the pains of, of, of their own community. Yeah. I mean, I think looking at that point you just made about the distance um, I've been privileged enough to never have to, 
use unemployment services until currently. And I know that the system is really overwhelmed, mm -hmm. but I have found this process to be so dehumanizing. Uh, oh, yeah. I feel there is still shame, even though millions of us lost our jobs by no fault of our own. And I would say by some fault of the government taking too long to act back in January. Um, yes. And, and I just think it's made me realize and I'm embarrassed to say that I've gotten to this point in my life without ever fully realizing how hard it is to be poor. And oh, yeah. No, it's, it's, I, well, why would you? I mean, that's not embarrassing to say. I, I think that, that it's, a, it's a shocking thing for anyone. Yeah. And just the, and I know that, you know, there's a lot to deal with and there's a lot of plans coming through and stuff like that. But I'm finding this to be a very valuable lesson for myself in looking at what the experience has for what the experiences have been like for a lot of people, like over time. I, yes. And I, I mean, there, there are any number of things we could focus on and some of it just makes me, you know, tear up when I think about it. Um, people calling unemployment 300, 400 times. Yeah you know, and not getting through. I know that in New York, they're um, apparently this week redesigning the system to make it easier. I still haven't gotten uh, but through. But <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. And that's like, that's, and that is, this is not the, the outlier. So many people are, are calling hundreds of times in frustration and desperation because so many people are feeling it. And, you know, we were, there's so many discussions about, um, could we have predicted that this was coming? Yeah, we can, we can say that there's going to be responsibility there. Just as an aside, just focusing on New York, just focusing on this district, we could have predicted that this would hit anyone hard when you shut down everyone's ability to make money for even a month, which we're going past. Of course, we've, we're already going past it. Um, one, like a third of our community, every community in this district is severely rent burdened, which means if you have one bad month, you have one big unexpected, um, you know, charge that you can barely afford, you're screwed. And that's not a small number of people for it to be a third of people in this district that includes Manhattan and Brooklyn, right? That's, that's, we're walking down the street and it's one, one of three of us, right? That's just that. And then some statistic, I'm trying to remember the exact number, but it's like the vast majority of American families can't afford a $400 unexpected expense because we don't have savings, you know? And that's the, 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 the hardest, saddest thing is that um, something about our culture in this country makes people feel shame about that, to be in that very large group that most of us are in, right? And it pisses me off. It makes me angry. And um, and so many of our systems are demeaning. I mean, we were, we were going into this public health crisis as the president was trying to take food stamps away, SNAP benefits away from people because they didn't have, because they're not working consistently. Well, our economy is now largely a gig economy for people, um, you know, for a lot of people, particularly in big cities like this. So you're very frequently have periods where you're not working full time, or maybe you have caregiving, a caregiving role, like back to our other conversation. So there are periods of time where you can't work, or maybe, maybe you're sick because most people don't, many people don't have paid sick leave at the, especially at the lower end of the spectrum. And, um, the Republicans and this president want to make it harder for people to even just get food stamps, to get SNAP benefits. And they were going to do that during this public health crisis. I think that they've, I actually need to check and see, um, if that has happened. Um, but it's just, it's just in, it's just dehumanizing for everyone.
And it's unacceptable. I know it's within your platform to make sure that everyone has access to reproductive services that they need. And now the GOP is capitalizing on the coronavirus by sneaking anti-abortion language into law. And I was just wondering if you could give us some of your thoughts on that. I mean, it's, you know, I'd actually even like to go back. I mean, you can imagine when I think about it. Um, Same same as us. I know that's why I laughed when I was uh, saying it. Because I'm like, we're all fucking annoyed. You know what? I know I would even like to go back to like bring gaslighting into this conversation because like I've been so reluctant to use that term because you know it gets all of these you know people get wigged out especially some of my dude friends if they hear that they're like oh I'm gonna back away now um <laughs> like my husband he's like I don't want this you're a millennial I can't hear this conversation uh, he's a few years older than I am but to me the issue of women's right to choose and abortion access it, it and the, our fight for that as women has been one where we've been gaslighted for so gaslit for so long because we've been told, oh, come on, you never have to worry about that. No one would ever come on. That's like common culture. That's common understanding. No one's going to take those rights away from you. And look what's happened. Look Mm -hmm. what at the I mean, this is a concerted effort by the Republican Party to take away a woman's right to choose. They say, oh, let me just let's put as many different cases we can up, mostly predominantly in the South in different states and see how we can pick away at a woman's right to choose. And, you know, even, even, you know, like my good liberal progressive friends, you know, would say things like that's never going to happen. People are never going to, you know, it's settled constitutional law basically through enshrined indirectly through right to privacy and Roe v. Wade. But it's not because they're finding ways to chip away at every, at, at these most dear things in terms of rights for women. And it's unacceptable. And um, that is one of those issues that is a non-starter for me. I can never vote for a party. I can never be supportive um, of any leader who even talks about incrementally taking away a woman's right to choose. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, I, I, I hope that um, these these cases don't succeed, but it's scary times. And I cannot believe for my six-year-old kid, we could be moving in the wrong direction more towards my mother's generation. You know, my hope is that, and I know there's a lot more to go through with this, but that the Equal Rights Amendment does get um, adopted. Um, They had some major success in in getting it through the Virginia um, legislature, which means they can, you know, if we, we, of course, there'll be several legal battles for this, but our rights as women um, and inclusive of all gender and, and our trans community should just be enshrined in the Constitution. Yeah. We shouldn't have to um, preserve our rights to um, our own bodies through privacy. I mean, that should be enshrined in our rights in the Constitution, and we should be in the Constitution, and we're not. And that's just mind blowing to me. And yet another reason um, why we need more women in Congress and more women in leadership, because um, you know you can bet. We get if we have a seat at the table, you can bet we're not going to be on the plate. That's why they don't want us there. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. One of the other things I've really liked about your policy proposals is looking at the fourth trimester for women. I think that when we talk about pregnancy and childbirth, it's like all the pre childbirth stuff, the quote unquote magic of childbirth, which oftentimes is over-medicalized and not handled properly. And then women are just sent home. And what are they supposed to do? So I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about um, why that's important to you and some of your ideas around that. Sure, 
Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, um, so I have a six year old and she's the light of my life. She's the love of my life. She's, you know, she's everything to me. Um, and I had postpartum, I had a really hard time, you know, figuring out, um, how to get past the, the grayness of that period, that, those first few months. Um, you know, I think part of it really was for me chemical. Um, part of it was, um, being overwhelmed, your body is, you know, uh, you know, so many things happen to you through this period. And it's pretty shocking to me that we have a society that one doesn't even give us paid leave. You know, you, you're lucky if you work at a, a, a certain companies to, to get paid leave. Um, but that we have women going back immediately having after giving birth, families immediately after adopting, um, or having, you know, surrogates or, you know, any sort of major life change like that, that we are not accommodating that. It's no wonder that uh, so many women end up exiting the workforce. It's extremely challenging. I mean, we are not supporting um, safe motherhood. Um, and, and through even pregnancy, I mean, we have more maternal mortality rate has gone down pretty much across the world except in America. And particularly if you're a black woman, you, you have an increasing chance of dying during childbirth. So between how we're um, supporting women through pregnancy and the lack of support post uh, pregnancy in terms of mental health support, um, in family care and in, in paid sick leave, we need to rethink our entire system. And you know, again, we should just be willing to do this because it's the right thing to do for women and for families. But the more we empower women to, you know, supporting them through safe childbirth and empowering them to make decisions that benefit themselves, their bodies and their families, the better uh, an economy we're going to have, the better society we're going to have. And of course, we don't have a system that works for women and for families because we have so women, so few women who have young children in Congress. I mean, it's some tiny statistics. Sometimes things something like five percent of women in Congress have young young kids, um, or five percent of Congress is women with young children. Excuse me, something like that. And um, I will be one of the few women with young children entering Congress when I win. And that's just unacceptable. I mean, even look right now what's happening. I can't tell you the number of women who are doing predominantly or all of the work with getting kids ready for remote learning or just long distance learning, what you talk about, or like homeschooling, whatever is, whatever is changes are being made. Um, in many homes, that's largely being done by women while they're also working remotely or trying to make ends meet. And um, it's time that our government recognized that. It's time our government recognized that with the way that we support maternal um, you know, health pre and post pregnancy. It's time that they did that with respect to supporting paid sick leave. Um, and it's time that we did that in supporting um, the expansion of, of programs like universal pre-K and ultimately 3K and uh, accessible, accessible caregiving roles um, and support for those in our government. And none of this is the regular part of the conversation or in the ether because, in my belief, there are enough women at the table. Um, because if there were, we'd be talking about the issues that are problematic for us every day. And on my chain texts with a bunch of other moms here in New York City and across the country, that's on the docket every day. Yeah, I've been like a little bit curious just about whether, 
I mean, I don't think there's really an answer to this, but um, whether or not the people who were doing less of the work at home were noticing that they were doing less of the work at home, considering that they're all home all the time, you know, <laughs> like if people like if, yeah, you yeah. know, if the women are doing most of the work and all of a sudden women and men are all home and whether or not people are noticing their partner doing more or less and whether that's changed for them. I'm sure it's case I, by um, case. Yeah. It is. I mean, full disclosure here, I, for example, and not to generalize, I don't cook. My husband does. We order a lot of <laughs> takeout and he cooks. So he is help- he's very <laughs> helpful at home. So this is not like my rant hour. Um, <laughs> but on the whole, I'm hearing that. We- I know because he'll be like, you should explain um, <laughs> these things. And I, you know, he's great. He's a great partner. I couldn't be running for office um, if I didn't have someone who is my genuine partner in this because it's it's a real marathon all the time, like right now. Um, but I'm hearing that a lot of women are bearing predominant amount of the responsibility for, for caregiving. And a lot of them are working, especially in New York where, um, it's really hard not to have everyone working because it's so expensive to live here, especially right now, if you've got a job. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm used to multitasking. I know a lot of women are, but, um, we should also get used to our government, uh, acknowledging our work, right. And, and making it easier for us to do that. So, I mean, that, that it's just, it needs to happen. And one of the things, you know, I only got to a little bit on the postpartum stuff that I personally dealt with. Um, the broader issue of mental health is a real um, hallmark for me in the campaign. And I come from uh, three generations of women who've lost custody of their kids because of mental illness and addiction. So my grandmother who lived with us, um, so was really influential in my life, lost custody of her kids. Um, earlier, um, my aunt who ultimately lived with us also lost custody of her kids and, you know, then my sister as well. And so I've had probably the closest women to me aside from my mom, um, go through a lot of, uh, difficulty, a lot of trauma and a lot of trauma for their kids and their family. And so for me, a big goal, not only in my, um, personal life to, to try and find every way to be a good mom, um, is to um, help families, uh, and particularly with mental health policy, because um, you know we're we're talking every day about the importance of healthcare, and I'm a supporter of Medicare for all. But I think everyone acknowledges that we're not doing enough for for healthcare in America. But kind of physical um, healthcare always gets mentioned, and mental healthcare always or typically gets forgotten. And I'll just say right now, mental healthcare is just as important as physical healthcare. Um, if, if one is lucky enough to be sequestered in their house right now, meaning they have the ability to stay home, they have sick leave and they're doing okay. Um, you know, I think we're all going through the, even just run of the mill, um, challenges of being sequestered in our homes and the, and, um, you know, real assaults on our mental health just on a basic level. But, you know, more broadly, we have a society that um, a, a world where the biggest source of disability is depression globally. The World Health Organization says it. Biggest source of disability from work is depression. And yet we have a country that really doesn't have true parity in terms of how we care for it. We don't have accessible therapy. We don't have accessible treatment. We don't have enough research on systems thinking to help younger generations that are only experiencing depression and anxiety in ever increasing numbers. Um, we're not, we're, we're avoiding this problem. And I think part of that has to do with stigma and shame 
And it's been, you know, perceived as unacceptable to talk about. And maybe our generations are the first to, to sort of, sort of own it. Um, but I, I can't get away from it. Like I told you, I come from a family that was, you know, really uh, broken apart at the seams by it. And so I refuse to let other families have to deal with that. And even if I can't go back in time and fix things, we've got to fix things for so many people and think about all the other problems that are really connected to mental health. Something like 40% of people, at least on Rikers Island, have serious mental illness. Um, the prevalence of mental illness among our homeless population, our chronically homeless, is huge. Um, uh, mental, untreated mental illness um, in education is extremely destructive and kids uh, grow up into adulthood predominantly unless you're wealthy without getting treated and it becomes a different kind of problem then. And it just, it needs to stop. We need to stop ignoring it and we need to start dealing with it and we need to start resourcing it. Not that health is any less important. Of course, I recognize that, especially right now, but there aren't, in my view, any real champions for mental health uh, in Congress, certainly not in New York. And I'm going to be that because I'm not ashamed. It's important to me. And whenever I mention it, maybe people don't get up during the speech and say, hey, me too, or my family too. But I certainly get the emails and the comments afterwards. And that's all I need because I'm the one who has to say something about it and make the change. I wanted to comment just really quickly that I want to adopt your confidence into the way that I talk about stuff. <laughs> like you know, it's so nice for you to be like, when I win and it, you know, just speak it into <laughs> happening. I, I need to do this more in my life. I know. I love it. We all should because, because men, you know, men yeah. go in there and just like, well, here I am. <laughs> yeah. They do it all the time. Yeah. So I just, you know, here we time. are. It's love time. it. Here we are. <laughs> Thank you. We are. Thank you so yeah. much for taking time out to do this with <laughs> yeah. us. This was awesome. Are you kidding me? No, thank you. Aww. Thank you. Aww. This is the highlight of my day and it's um, really wonderful. And I really appreciate what you ladies are doing. And um, I love talking about the issues. I love talking to smart women who are passionate and you, you ladies are certainly that. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Where um, <laughs> tell people where to like find you and how they can help your um your campaign <laughs> <Sure>. and <laughs> when they should vote for you sure so our our primary is on june 23rd um so hopefully everyone is um, registered to vote as a democrat um i need as many people to talk about the race talk about lindsey boyle and my name they can go onto our website if they want to volunteer support us and it's lindsey with an e lindseyboylan.com uh, and I'd, I'd love everyone to reach out. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm pretty active. I do it all myself, even sometimes I'm a spelling or two. Um, and uh, I would love to have all the support we can. We need a whole movement to win this, uh, but we can. And I think it's more important now than ever to, to have change. And we need more women driving that change. Okay, so let's say that the world wasn't a complete dumpster fire. Right. And there was no coronavirus. Totally. Where in the world would you want to be? Madagascar. Ooh, why? Lemurs. Dinosaurs? No, I said lemurs. <laughs> Le uh, that's, oh, that's I... lemurs for $500. <laughs> I thought you said dinosaurs. <laughs> I don't know. Actually, it's a weird question because like, do I want to be in the safest place? South Korea. Do I want to be... Right? On an island with a bunch of animals? Madagascar. Ooh, 
I'm I would I would go to the Galapagos Islands. There's almost no people. It's all Ooh. animals. And even when there are people, it's That's like good. very like limited people and it's all researchers and I could just like spend the day fucking scuba diving, not worrying about infecting other people. Okay, so this is if there is coronavirus. Yes. Okay. Yes. You would go to the Galapagos. Okay. That's a really good one. Final answer. Thank you. Okay. I would go to New Zealand. Ooh, another good answer. Why? Because it's awesome, first of all. And it's beautiful. Uh, yeah. And I really liked Wellington when I was there. But also, as are most other female leaders in the world, they are handling the coronavirus outbreak very, very well. And I think they've had barely any confirmed cases. And so I'd get to go there. And it would be awesome. There's so many sheeps. I think I would put that on my second option for sure. Because like Galapagos yeah. Island sounds really awesome, but I wonder if it would get like super lonely after a while. Like, do I get to have some some people there? Let me ask you this. Are you lonely right now during the quarantine? Eh, hit or miss. Again, like I said to you earlier, I'm an only child, so I kind of swing between completely being used to entertaining myself and being totally fine with that and then desperately right. wanting to like hug my friends and or entertain strangers for validation. <laughs> I feel like I could do like a month on the Galapagos Islands and it would be awesome. And then after that, I would be like, mm. I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. Or like I need to I need to like hip hop over somewhere else and then come back. So now if there was no coronavirus, where would you be? Really? Oh, that's that's an island that I just made up. <laughs> What's so great about that island? Um, That's an island where all the people that I like are and there's no Karens and the sand is pink. And I have this weird, strange ability only on that island to do a full-on split because I've always wanted to. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. And everyone gets one superpower. Ooh, what would your superpower be? So my boring answer is telekinesis, but I heard somebody's the other day that I can't remember. And now I feel like I have to be more uh, inventive and like make my own, you know? Oh, okay. But I like the idea of like moving shit with my mind. You'd be like DIY genius? Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's good. What would your superpower be? I'd be able to speak every single language. Ooh, that's a really good one. That's my dream superpower. And a very, like, logical one for our world. And it would just be awesome. Like, imagine just walking around and then someone said something and you could just understand it and talk back to them. Hell yeah. Like, kind of like in the in the bad place <laughs> um, or the good place or whatever, where Chidi speaks French, but then in the good place, everyone can just understand each other. I would be like that. Amazing. Did you see I just made a pop culture You reference? did. I'm very proud of you. <laughs> Wait, where would you go? Oh, uh, I would go to Goa in India. Ooh. Because I love India. I love beaches. I love South India. I love things cooked in coconut, also fish. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I'd go to Goa. What's my real answer? Yeah, I stick with, I st I'm sticking with my island. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Welcome to My Vagina. It's time for us to slide on out of here. <laughs> you can find us on Instagram at Welcome to My Vagina. On Twitter at Welcome to My Vag. Soon to be on Medium. You can donate to us at Patreon, LiberaPay, PayPal, and uh, Venmo at Welcome to My Vagina. Yeah, become a monthly subscriber. Yeah. Yeah, go to WelcomeToMyVagina.com and become a subscriber to our newsletter as mm -hmm. well. You can email us at welcometomyvagina at gmail.com. We like questions and fan art and jingles. And suggestions for future episodes. True. Check out Jesse's awesome videos at on YouTube. 
just search for Welcome to My Vagina. Check out Rebecca's awesome writing at franklyrebecca.com. And head on over to morebanana.com to check out all of the awesome projects by our production company. Yeah. And thanks, Kate. Thanks, Kate, for being our amazing, dope-ass fucking producer. (laughs) 